The message this morning is titled, Come, Let Us Reason Together. Brother Matt Thomas has asked that I read to you in preparation for that message from Isaiah 1, 16 through 20. Isaiah 1, 16 through 20. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thank you, Gene. There's the other part of that scripture reading. I didn't tell the guys there were two slides this morning for it. Good to see you all out this morning. Uh, we've got a good crowd again, and uh, it's good to have our campers back. I hope you all can stay with me. Every year that's a challenge. Uh, this is the first year in like 20 years I have not gone to church camp. Uh, I feel you know all energized. I'm looking out at, at uh, those of you who come back from camp and you look like you're hurting, so... Uh, uh, good, to, good to be uh, together with you again. Uh, Barry did a great job with class. You wouldn't have guessed he was at camp if, if he hadn't have told you. He looked good. I wonder how much caffeine he drank this morning. Um, but uh, anyhow, it is a beautiful day, Larry, uh, to be worshiping together. Uh, I noticed some, some folks in the audience that I had not met. I, I did get to meet one family that's been here before, but I missed them, and there are, there are some other visitors. You're, you're all welcome. As Larry stated, and uh, uh, any time that you have anything that you would like to discuss or ask, why well, feel free to ask. We're we're pretty open to discuss anything around here, and uh, it's a real real privilege in the church that we have. Um, we're reading through the Bible together, through the Old Testament, and we're at the point where Israel, their glory days are coming to an end. And it's not because God decided I'm going to bring him to an end all of a sudden. It's because they decided uh, through, through wrong thinking that there was something greater out there. The grass was greener somewhere else. And how easy that is for us to do. We, we can read the, this and say, boy, they're crazy leaving this, this goodness of the Lord for something else. And yet, each time we sin, we do the same thing. And so there's a lot to learn when you read through especially this segment of the prophets, you know, for about four or five months, we're going to be in this period where the prophets are, are calling for the return of God's people. That's about, you know, in our year that we're spending in the Old, uh, Old Testament, we're really in this phase of, no, don't go there, return to the Lord for about a third of the time. Don't let it become stale to you. <laughs> If you're reading through those readings and you're seeing yet another call and another plea, it is amazing to me, just like God has illustrated the gospel of Christ in so many different ways, you know, a wedding, a sacrifice, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. He draws beautiful imagery of his love for his people through the prophets. They, they use words of the Holy Spirit that draw pictures in your mind. Vivid descriptions of what God's trying to say. We've seen some of those in recent weeks, but 
But each time you think, oh boy, here's another prophet, and here we go with some more, you know, uh, indictments and, and negative preaching, oh, you don't have to read very long before you see the hope set out before them, the dichotomy of a life of sin versus a life of salvation and, and God through Christ who is coming. And that message of hope is, is refreshing to me every time I come across it. As I know, he's got me in mind when I'm reading it, and he has you in mind as well. And so they, they jeopardized and even, and even trampled upon their blessings in the name of pursuing greater blessing, in the name of pursuing a greater God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, as Paul put in Romans chapter 1. They made an exchange. And it wasn't always to be less religious. We tend to think that when Israel or God's people in the Bible are departing from God, they just, they're tired of the restraints of religion and they want to get away from it. Sometimes that's very true. Sometimes it's actually that they wanted to pursue what they believed to be more devotion. Anyone can sacrifice a lamb. I want to show a God that I will sacrifice one of my own children. You see, in their minds, this was a greater, deeper devotion to a God. And so if some pagan deity uh, demanded the, the sacrifice of a child, they'd say, well, that's even, that's even more religious. That's something more I can do to prove my worth to this God. And perhaps I'll incite his favor upon me if I do this, this great thing. You see, so it's not always to be less religious, and I think that's, again, relevant in our society today. Some people depart from the faith in search of something deeper. I think it's because grace doesn't always make sense to people. Now, here's something to think about. Grace really isn't rational. It's really not reasonable in and of itself. Justice is rational. You know, when you get what you deserve. Don't we pledge allegiance to justice for all? We believe that. We believe that justice should be served, except when it's me. I like the idea, except when I have wronged in some way or someone, and there's a penalty due me. Now all of a sudden, I want mercy. I want that penalty to be withheld, or at least lessened. I want grace, too. I want my dignity back. I want to be given a second chance. And so for some, I think that you can reason yourself out of grace. I know a person in particular that I had a conversation with, an unbeliever because of grace. I thought, how can this be? I mean, this is too good to be true. Oh, it's too good to be true. <laughs> For this gentleman, he said, if I've sinned, I should pay the price. I don't think it's right that, that this religion has been set up to where somebody else takes your sins for you. I think that's cheap. And I thought, well, I never thought about it that way. But I actually could see what he was saying. You know, if you and I have any sense of responsibility or accountability, we think I should, I should own my sin. That's what the Bible teaches us to do, actually. And so do you see how people can, can exchange God's offer for something else that they deem to be better? 
even improved, upgraded? It's possible, but it's not what God did. It's not what God did. God is committed to justice, but he's committed to grace too. Now, how can this be? How can we have justice for all? <laughs> well, God sent Christ into the world to take what we deserve upon himself on a tree. The sins of every man would be punished, justice, in one man who would allow the rest of us to be justified. So he would resolve this seeming conflict between justice and mercy or justice and grace. But it doesn't seem reasonable to some. What was unreasonable that we should be released of sin is now in the Bible set forth as the most reasonable thing in the world. It's the best thing going. And the prophets are pleading to the people saying, God has already provided a way for you to be released of your sin debt. He's already provided it. Now at this time in the Old Testament, he's provided it here. In his mind, he knows what he's going to do and he's established a temporary system by which people could be saved when the Savior comes. But he hasn't done it yet. We're not there yet. Andy at the Lord's table said, that this offer that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life, is the greatest offer ever made. And that's because it's, thank God, unreasonable to us. <laughs> it's unreasonable. There's no way that we're going to be able to fix this. And so God goes outside of the parameters of what is just and what we deserve and what is demanded for sin and offers a solution in and of himself for us to be reconciled with him. It's a beautiful thing Israel had forgotten. They'd forgotten their place. And what the prophets do is they reason in God's words as to why the gospel of Jesus Christ Yes, they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They weren't using his name in that way yet, Jesus. But they're preaching it, and they're preaching why they needed to prepare themselves for him when he comes. So let's accept the invitation that was in our scripture reading from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, to reason together. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. How can this be? Well, the prophets begin to make this case for God, not in secret, but openly. He has displayed himself, and so openly they proclaim it, that from the beginning, God has worked in the lives of men and in the world to show himself as the one true God and to present 
to man that he is going to resolve the sin problem. In a panoramic display, going back to the Garden of Eden and stretching out even into the Garden of God and Paradise, the prophets lay out a picture for Israel and for all the world. Yes, some of these prophets are going into the world. Jonah, Nahum, both went to Assyria, right? And others also prophesied to the world around, and they were to watch and see how to have a relationship with God and actually convert to God. And so they drew this panoramic display. Now here's a picture that is a panoramic view of Ohio Stadium. A sea of red, isn't it? Well, that, this really vividly brings it out from this photograph. It almost looks like a painting. It's a photograph. It's a wide-angle view or representation. That's what a, a panorama is. And the prophets show this picture from beginning to end. But mind you, they're, they're in such a time and place where they have to put an X that says, you are here. You're here. Now, when we were in Switzerland, I, I finally, after four days... Uh, was humbled enough to buy a map. You know, I had the GPS, right? But GPS didn't always work, you know? And I hadn't heard of some of the little alleys that we had to take. So I bought a map, and they put on the map, you know, you were here uh, where, the, where I bought the map. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> that, that helps. Uh, the prophets did that. And they said, here's where you are in this process. Here's why it's relevant to you to stay in the way of grace. The prophets were God's spokesmen. They were his authority. Now today, our, uh, a common phrase of authority in our civil uh, arena is in the name of the law. Sometimes the police will come looking for someone with a warrant or otherwise, and they'll say, open up in the name of the law. That tells somebody that they have authority to open this door, whether I open it for him or not, it's going to get opened, right? Domestically, the authority is when your middle name's used. Matthew Richard Thomas. That draws attention to the message that follows. And that's the whole point. There's going to be some authority behind it. There's going to be some persuasiveness behind it. And they were God's spokesmen. David said, his word was on my tongue as the Spirit spoke by me, Peter said, Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved. And the meaning of that word there is borne along as a ship is borne along by the wind. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit carried them along in their preaching and, and delivering this message. And so they had the authority of God. They were counselors to God's people and to the world, the world rulers. Sometimes they were welcome, sometimes they weren't. You had court prophets, what's, what's called court prophets. Isaiah was one of them. So as we read through this, you're going to read a prophet who was privileged to come in and out of the court of the kings. Over four kings did he serve, the span of four kings. In fact, it's a time that could stretch as far as if there were a counselor for Roosevelt in the 30s, and he's still counseling Obama today. That's a long career, isn't it, as a counselor to the rulers of a nation? And so he is welcome. Now, Elijah, Micaiah, the message of God was not accepted 
uh, through them to the kings of Israel in particular. And so they were banished uh, to the woods and they had to, to intersect the king when he traveled in and out of the palace uh, to deliver messages of God. And they were very hated. Then you have, like last week, the prophet Hosea, who was a living message. He was a living message. He lived among the people. And he became known as the one whose wife committed adultery, had left him, had gone into prostitution. But he also became known as the one who redeemed her back to himself at the price of a slave. Took her in restored that relationship and so his message was a visual aid of grace at work and they were persuasive these prophets were persuasive because they had the truth they knew what the true worldview was and they persuaded and i think that's what perhaps made some of these kings angry was not just to hear it and say okay go away but the the truth of the message sat in the craw but they didn't want to hear it. And then the prophets persuaded them, as a good preacher should. Persuade with the truth, to move them, to change. Their muscle wasn't found in uh, eloquent speeches. The muscle to persuade stub stubborn hearts was found in their uh, truthfulness. It was found in their accuracy short-term predictive prophecy, prophecies that were made that would happen within a very short period of time that the people could see fulfilled. And occasionally, the Holy Spirit accompanied the message with signs and wonders, like with the apostles and the early Christians. Now, you should note that today, still, Men are converted by a messenger's truthfulness, by the accuracy through which they live their lives, and the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit that is produced in their lives. So this isn't something that was just the prophets and just the apostles. This still today is the way men are convinced of God's grace, and it's through you. Now, you may not perform a miracle, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit is evident in you, so much so that people can see it. And when they speak evil of you, Peter said, there may be a day when they actually glorify God through your good work. So keep it up. Be true. Be persistent. Be persuasive. And let the Spirit of God do the work. But in whatever they said or did, they cast this panoramic view of the world. Read with me from 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me, if you would. I'm going to read 11 verses of this, of this letter of Peter calling the early Christians into closer union with God. Peter introduces his letter, introduces himself, and then says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. See, Peter even is drawing the panorama. 
Now he's pointing forward to this hope in heaven. He says, you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's the present. You're being kept by the power of God right now. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See how he keeps pointing to the future, getting ready for this future? Whom, Jesus, whom, having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Watch him reach back now and draw the beginning of the picture. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. You see, they were preachers of grace. They were preachers of Christ. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They would speak by inspiration the Word of God and then they would sit back and go, Wow, I myself don't fully grasp this message. They inquired and they searched and they talked amongst the other prophets and they searched the scriptures and said, what a mystery, but what a great mystery. What a promise, but what a certain promise. And so they were preaching this and Isaiah became one of them. He said to them, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, that's the apostles, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind ready for battle, he says. Be sober and rest your hope fully on the grace which is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, this plan, this scheme of redemption has been in place. And so Isaiah comes in as a preacher of grace. And he doesn't plea insanity, he pleads reasonably. Let us reason together about this. And in chapter 40 and 41, present your case. Bring forth your strong reasons why you're forsaking the saving message of God. Turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41, and watch how he sets himself up, God does, that is, over and against the futility of idolatry. In Isaiah 41, first he calms their nerves because he has made indictments and that their sin is about to be met with full penalty. But he says in a couple of places, I'll just point out one, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, even if that's, if you don't repent and you have to come back from exile, I am, Barry, I am still going to be with you. I do not change. 
I do not rely on any other being to carry this through. I myself will see it through. Now watch what he says in verse 20. I'm going to do this, he says, so that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Now listen to this argumentation. Gene, you'll appreciate this legal discussion. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the king of Jacob, that is, as to why you would worship a piece of stone carved with men's hands who cannot speak. A piece of wood fashioned and set on your shelf that cannot speak, let alone tell you the beginning from the end. He said, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare to us things to come. Show the things that will come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil. He's saying, do something. Show the things that will come thereafter. Indeed, you are nothing and your work is nothing. And those who choose you are an abomination. God's intelligent creatures, we who have brains made to think and reason, bowing down before a piece of wood crafted by Joe down the street, ascribed beliefs and doctrines which we ourselves have made up and call that our God. God said, that's an abomination to me. Who has revealed himself from beginning to end. Wow. Isaiah had his work cut out for him. Three of the kings he prophesied to listened to him. One didn't. All of them sinned. But through him, God prepares this people the best he can without forcing their hand. He also describes in vivid detail the life and work of God's servant, Christ Jesus, who is going to come and actually resolve man's sin problem. Isaiah is quoted nearly 80 times in the New Testament. The most quoted prophet, the most quoted books, the Psalms, but the most quoted prophet, person, is Isaiah, over 80 times, over 40 times in the Gospels and the book of Romans alone. We're told in Isaiah of his virgin birth, chapter 7, verse 14. We're told of his Galilean ministry, chapter 9. We're told that God's Spirit will rest upon him, the son of David, chapter 11. We're told that one will come and prepare the way before him in the desert, chapter 40. We're told that he will be widely rejected, Chapter 51, he'll suffer beating, disfigurement, and make a blood atonement. Chapters 50, 52, and 53. And he'll redeem his people without money. Chapter 52. He'll die with the poor and be buried with the rich. Chapter 53. He'll heal the brokenhearted. Chapter 61. A new name will be given to his people, which the Lord will name at the proper time. Chapter 62. And Gentiles will seek him also, chapter 11, 62, 65, and many other places. He'll judge the earth in righteousness, chapter 11. And he refers to that land beyond the blue as Beulah. Our song leaders 
And those of us who know and love the song Beulah Land, Sweet Beulah Land, will appreciate the fact that that comes from Isaiah 62.4. And that word Beulah, are you ready for this as a recap of Hosea? That word Beulah means married. Married land. Well, we'll be back together again as husband and wife in that land forever. No one coming between us. All of this in, Hos- in Isaiah. And so he pleads with them. In Matthew Henry's words, in chapter 1, let us reason together, though your sins are scarlet. I'll make them white as snow. He said, it's as if God is saying, while your hands are full of blood, I can't have anything to do with you. Though you bring me a multitude of sacrifices, chapter 1, if you wash and make yourselves clean, you're welcome to draw nigh to me. Come now, let us talk the matter over. This you may expect, God says, and it's very little that's required, only that you be willing and obedient, that you consent to obey. And Henry points out that he does not say that you be perfectly obedient, but that you be willingly obedient. There's a big difference between the two. Perfectly obedient is impossible for us. It requires that we be perfect. Willingly obedient is what is required, and it's a small thing that we have our sins removed before the living God and can stand before Him whole in the judgment day. The same is required of us today, a willing mind, an obedient faith, and a sacrificial blood atonement, except now that atonement is made by the blood of Christ. And yet, when we reach out with God's offer to others, we're often rejected. And so finally, he reasons about the gospel. He says that it's, this is the, the reasonable thing. You know it's not reasonable? Sin is not reasonable. Not if there's a God. That's why to sin we have to cast God out. That's why our culture is so bent on removing Him from every sector. So that there is no such thing as sin. It's all moral relativism. But if there's a God, sin is very unreasonable. For He's made an offer to forgive our sins. As we come to meet Him one day, we'll be able to stand before Him justified. Sin's not reasonable. Sin hurts men. Organic evolution is not reasonable. It is a theory that comes out of replacing God with something else. It's the only other way it could be. It's not reasonable. Aborting babies is not reasonable let alone selling them, if you've been paying attention. Sex changes and same-sex unions are not reasonable. Not if there's a God. Materialism, that is your pursuit of the material to possess and to have, it's not reasonable. (laughs) You're going to leave it. And what shall you do when you stand before your Maker? You might gain the whole world. What are you going to do if you lose your soul? It's not reasonable. False religion, man-made doctrines, idolatry, it's not reasonable. Selfishness is not reasonable. (laughs) Then I should live for myself. Every single one of us, even if you're not Christians, every single person would say, it's more blessed to give than to receive. 
I just, I know that it's better to be a giver than a receiver. I feel good when I give, more so than when I, selfishness isn't even reasonable. Sin is just not reasonable. Not practically, but not religiously, if there's a God. These things bring the wrath of God upon us, he said, so that men are without excuse. I've revealed this to men. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. And concerning God, Paul reasoned thus. His invisible attributes are clearly seen by the things that are made. The rainbows, Mary, the corn that I mentioned, and how it drinks in when it's dry, and all of the beauty that surrounds us. Paul said, just look at this and explain it without a creator. It's foolishness, like David said. It's foolishness. Concerning his deity, Jesus asked his disciples after some time with him, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. You must be somebody come back from the dead. They reason because you're phenomenal, because you're powerful, because you're influential, because you're a miracle worker. You must be one of these guys. All right, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, now blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. Now, some man didn't just tell you this and you bought it hook, line, and sinker. But my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You have deduced this by the evidence that he has set forth through history and standing in your presence. You've deduced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Blessed are you, and blessed are you who have not seen and yet believed, Jesus said. Concerning the Bible, Jesus reasoned concerning the rich man who wanted to return from the dead. And he said in Luke 17, 31, if, if your relatives do not hear Moses and the prophets, the Bible, neither will they believe if someone returns to them from the dead. This book is the word of God. It's unchanging. It's sufficient for our salvation and for our life and living it and living in godliness. He said, if they don't believe that, they won't believe anything. This is God's testimony through history written down for us to know him. Concerning God's love, Paul reasoned, I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Savior. I'm sure of that because of his work. That's reasonable now to me, that he would love us that much. Concerning sin, though, Paul also reasoned. Now, concerning righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, O Felix. And Felix said, go away for now, <laughs> for he was afraid. And to Timothy, Paul said, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle in humility, able to correct those who are in opposition that perhaps the Lord may grant them repentance so that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. That's reasonable, Timothy. Talk to people reasonably and gently and persuasively. Concerning salvation, Paul said, this is a faithful and true saying, worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy. He says, not because of my greatness, because I was a good example of a pattern that he would set forth of his patience with man, person after person after person through the coming generations of his mercy and his saving power. 
That's why he picked me. I am the chief among sinners. And yet he upholds me as the one to whom people look and say, yes, it can be done. Therefore, it is within reason to believe that God can save me. Now concerning our sanctification, that is the ongoing process of our being set apart as a useful vessel in his, in his household and in his kingdom, Peter reasoned. Therefore, since God who created all things will dissolve all things in the end, he says, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That calls for reason, doesn't it? If this is true, then what manner of person ought you to be? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, he says, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Finally, Jesus said, Blessed are you when you reason thus, and they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you, you college students listening who are going to college, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And where are they now? C.S. Lewis said, when the whole world is running toward the edge of a cliff and you're running the other direction, the whole world will think you're insane. Which direction are you going to go? <laughs> Therefore, come now and let us reason together about the gospel. Reason about your life. What manner of person ought you to be? Hear the call of Isaiah. Hear the call of Christ. Hear the call from this pulpit today. Let's stand and sing this song. Become a Christian today.